Thunder rumbles in the distance as thick black storm clouds start to roll in. The men on the massive building site, high on a river cliff above the Seine in Normandy, rush to cover up their work. Tools clatter as they're thrown down. Sheets flap as they're pulled over half-built stone walls. Four men yell and labourers grumble as they hurry to protect mortar from being ruined by a heavy shower. There's an urgency to the builders' movements. King Richard the Lionheart, ruler of the Plantagenet Empire, is on site, checking on their progress. He's here almost every week at the moment, always pushing them to work faster and harder. But even the Lionheart can't turn away a thunderstorm. The skies rumble again, and now the first fat drops of rain start falling. They splatter and hiss as they land on stone heated by the late spring sun. Then, as the clouds blow closer, the irregular pitter-patter becomes the hard drum of a full-on downpour. The rain roars as it falls in sheets. But above the roar, there's another sound. Howls of surprise and terror, yells of disgust. Because this isn't normal rain, it's red, bright red. This unholy torrent lashes out of the roiling sky. It runs in crimson rivulets through the mud. It stains the clothes and the hair of everyone who isn't under shelter. None of them have ever seen anything like it. It's almost like this isn't rain at all. Almost like it's blood. A chronicler monk of the day describes how the people on the building site react to this grisly storm. He says he gets his intel directly from men who were actually there. They observed drops of real blood upon their garments and feared that so unusual an occurrence might portend evil. Which is a fair conclusion to reach because, let's face it, Bathtubs of blood being dumped on your head hardly portends that everything's going to be just fine. They start asking each other, is God telling us to stop our work? To down our tools for good and get out of this place? Forget it. It's going to take more than blood falling from the clouds to put Richard off. Here's the chronicler again. The king was not dismayed, nor did he relax in promoting the building work in which he took so great delight. Even if an angel from heaven had told him to desist, he would have pronounced anathema against him. He would have pronounced anathema? That's medieval monkish for he would have told him to shut his angelic mouth or have it shut the hard way. What Richard's building in Normandy is far too important to be derailed by anything or anyone. It's one of the greatest fortresses the Western world has ever seen. But it's more than that too. It's a statement of intent. While Richard was away on crusade and in prison, his enemies, who were led by King Philip Augustus of France and Richard's own brother John, tried to slice off the best bits of the Plantagenet Empire for themselves. 
Ever since he got back, Richard has been leading the counterattack. It's consumed the last four years of his life, and he's still not finished. So Richard doesn't care if it rains blood, toads, or iron nails. He's going to get back what's his, and make sure no one ever dreams of trying to mess with the Plantagenets again. I'm Dan Jones, and from Something Else and Sony Music Entertainment, this is History, Season 2 of A Dynasty to Die For. Episode 11, Reign of Terror. Fighting wars in the late 12th century is a slow, grinding, piecemeal, expensive business. Thanks to Hollywood, we have this idea that medieval warfare was about big armies of tens of thousands of archers, knights and foot soldiers clashing on battlefields, with the outcome of a single day's combat deciding who wins and who loses. That has some grounding in truth, but not for the time we're talking about. It's really only in the 15th century onwards that huge battles become anything like the default mode of warfare. In Richard's age, not so much. Think about the story we've explored so far in this podcast. This is, amazingly, episode 35 of our journey with the Plantagenets. How many super-mega battles have we seen? I'm not talking about skirmishes on beaches or scraps over cities. I'm talking about everyone's all-in, no retreat. One side wins, and one side faces obliteration. By my count, it's just one. One the Plantagenets weren't anywhere near. It's the Battle of Hattin in 1187. That's the one where Saladin wiped the floor with King Guy of Jerusalem, took Guy prisoner, pinched the true cross, and destroyed the fighting force of the whole Crusader kingdom. As Henry II knew well, and Richard definitely understands, big battles are risky. You can lose a lot of men, your best relics, and even your king in one morning. What's potentially even worse is that the outcome represents God's judgement on the righteousness of your cause. They're best avoided unless you really don't have any other choice, or you're absolutely certain of winning. Instead, warfare in Richard's age is about skirmishes, small-scale dust-ups, and, above all, sieges. And the most important piece of military technology of the age is the castle. If you build a castle and garrison it with knights, it controls the land within a couple of days' ride around it. If you capture a castle and replace its knights with your own, then you seize control of that area of land. So, if you want to conquer a whole region, let's say, I don't know, half of Normandy, which your idiot younger brother John has given away to the King of France while you were in prison, well, you have to go around capturing and building castles. All of which brings us back to that Norman clifftop where we found Richard at the beginning of this episode, with the clouds pouring blood and everyone hopping around like it's a Halloween remix of Singing in the Rain. 
So what's going on? Regarding the blood, to be honest, we don't really know. Possibly a dust storm from the Sahara dyed the sky red. Perhaps it's just a turn of phrase that ended up being taken literally by a chronicler. If you want to hear more informed speculation, check out this week's subscriber episode. What matters for now is to ask what was so important to Richard that he risked goading God into some truly biblical omen sending? Well, put very simply, he's building a gigantic castle at a critical strategic point. It's on a cliff 90 metres above the River Seine, which is the main thoroughfare between Rouen, the capital of Normandy, and Paris, the capital of France. It's going to command the Seine Valley and the borderlands between the two cities, the area known as the Vexin. That's been a key focus for tensions between French kings and the Plantagenets since day one. Neither side has ever been able to take a lasting grip on the Vexin. Richard's castle is designed to change that for good. It's going to be huge, that's a given. But it's also technically extraordinary. Tricked out with cool new features Richard's learned from the elite castles of the Holy Land. It's built to what's known as a concentric plan. That means it has rings of fortifications around its central towers. It's also getting machicolations holes through which you can tip boiling oil or heated sand on your enemies if they come too close. A must-have feature of every holiday home. Richard says it's going to be so state-of-the-art that he'd be able to defend it even if the walls were made of butter. This castle will hold hundreds of troops and it'll be connected to the river port of Andely below it so all those hungry mouths can be kept supplied. What's more, this fortress is going to go up fast. Really fast. It usually takes 10 years to build a proper big boy castle. This one is going to be erected in less than two years. To make that happen, Richard is ploughing in twice as much money into its budget as he'll spend on every castle in the whole of England in a normal year. Oh, and he's also building it illegally, on land that's supposed to be demilitarised. Richard gives the fortress a name that reflects all of this. He calls it Chateau Gaillard. That's often translated out of Old French as the saucy castle. I don't really think that does it justice. Gaillard implies physically handsome, strong and powerful, but also lusty and sexually potent. In other words, it's much more than simply saucy. Chateau Gaillard isn't just a middle finger to the French King Philip Augustus in Paris. It's a middle finger accompanied by a really suggestive crotch grab. Richard's builders start work on Chateau Gaillard in 1196. They're pretty much handing it over to the painters and decorators by the end of 1198, at which point Richard can pat himself and everyone else on the back. From this point on, 
Richard has an unbreakable forward base from which he can plan and execute the reconquest of all the bits of the Norman Vexin that he reckons should have Plantagenet flags flying over them. His knights are going to be able to ride out from this place, terrorising Philip's subjects and attacking his castles. On the Seine, a fleet of war galleys are going to cruise up and down the wide river like modern-day Vikings, raiding French towns and robbing French boats. It's game on, but it's a long way from game over. As big and highly specced as Chateau Gaillard is, you can't win a war with one castle alone. Ever since he came home from prison, Richard has been fighting to put Philip Augustus back in his box. And there's still plenty more to do. There will have to be more sieges, more skirmishes, more castles seized and more castles built before the Lionheart can truly say that vengeance has been his. When Henry III chose his royal advisers, he ended up with some very untrustworthy power grabbers, which led to poor management decisions, rebellions, and at least one person in prison. Why didn't he use Indeed? Well, Indeed wasn't around back then, but it is today. Indeed is the ultimate hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and matching technology that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. When I was hiring, I didn't use Indeed either and the process was very slow and stressful, so I wish I had. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a £100 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com dynasty. Indeed.com dynasty. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's full of people celebrating their successes, but if the Plantagenets have taught us anything, it's that failing is much more interesting. So that's why I'm certain you're going to love the podcast How to Fail. The very brilliant Elizabeth Day invites guests on to talk about three of their biggest failures and what they've taught them about life. It's a great way to hear a new side to people you may think you know. Guests include Bernie Sanders, Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Stanley Tucci. Give it a try. Find How to Fail wherever you get your podcasts. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. If these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Richard's war to win back his battered empire is a real saga. Most kings in English history would have given it up as unwinnable. But Richard is not most kings. He sticks to the task, grinding out victory after victory, always believing that so long as he keeps throwing punches, eventually he'll deliver a knockout blow. And as he watches the last stages of Chateau Gaillard being built in 1198, 
Richard's able to reflect on what he's achieved so far. We don't know this for sure, but one of his favourite memories might be from the start of his campaign. In the summer of 1194, not long after Richard had arrived in France, he fought his way down to the Loire Valley, hunting for Philip Augustus, who was there with an army of his own. When Philip saw Richard coming, he took fright. Then he took flight. Not fast enough, though. The English army ambushed Philip's baggage train and stole the lot. This was a major coup for starters, because at the time a baggage train didn't just contain a king's suitcases and a few changes of crown. It had Philip's furniture, his portable chapel, his archives of government documents and quite a lot of cold hard cash, which in a war as long and costly as Richard's always came in handy. Or here's another coup. After capturing Philip's baggage train, Richard went to his southern duchy of Aquitaine to knock the skulls together of the French king's pals down there. Not for the first time, just the rumour that he was on his way was enough to have many of his enemies hoisting the white flag. In a newsletter sent to England reporting this stage of the campaign, Richard bragged that We captured the city and citadel of Angoulême in a single evening. Just the sight of Richard getting ready to attack was enough to do the job. He might as well have added, And we could have done it with a blindfold on and one hand tied behind our back. Then there were also the winds that didn't even require him to bring his sword. In 1197, he had managed to prize away the current Count of Flanders from his alliance with Philip. Counts of Flanders have typically loved playing the role of power broker between the Plantagenets and the French. Persuading the Count to join with him instead of Philip cost Richard dearly, in the form of huge payments deliverable in cash and wine. But it was yet another vital piece in the giant power jigsaw he was constructing. Bit by bit, Richard's getting closer to his goal to regain everything that was taken from him and to personally humiliate Philip Augustus in the process. And in the autumn of 1198, once Chateau Gaillard is built, Richard gets his chance. In late September, Richard rides to the Vexam with a couple of hundred knights and several thousand foot soldiers, heading for a place called Gisor, the Lionheart gets busy taking over minor castles that are loyal to Philip. Before long, his spies bring him some news. Philip has got wind of this and is headed his way with his own much larger army. When Richard hears the news, he climbs a hill to watch the French army approaching. And in the words of that noted historian Shania Twain, Richard's like, that don't impress me much. Despite the fact that Philip's army is bigger, and despite the fact that Richard's own men are spread out around the countryside, the Lionheart decides to charge. To hear what happens next, we can turn to the 13th century biography of the great Plantagenet knight William Marshall. It's worth noting that Marshall isn't actually present when what I'm about to describe takes place. But it's such a famous incident that the author of his biography 
decides to include it anyway. The king said, God is with us, let us attack them. He immediately rode at them. Just as a ravenous lion, starved of food, runs at its prey and finds it, seeking for nothing else but the moment when it can catch up with it. Faced with Richard's ultra-aggression, Philip chickens out. He doesn't fancy the fight. So he runs for the castle of Gisor, with Richard hot on his heels. But then, as Marshall's biography tells it, had it not been for a dense cloud of dust from ground dried by the summer's heat, the King of France himself would have been in danger of being taken captive. Saved by the dust, it would have been quite the turnaround if Richard, once a prisoner king, had managed to get Philip in his clutches. That wasn't to be, but it's still an awful day at the office for the French king. And it's about to get a lot worse, because to get into Gisors, Philip and his knights have to cross a bridge over the river Ept. There's such a stampede to escape Richard, that too many of them cram onto it at once. The bridge collapses under their weight, and dozens of knights, as well as Philip himself, end up in the water. A royal clerk and a few other servants haul Philip out, and he makes it to safety. But not everyone is so lucky. About 20 French knights drown. 91 are taken prisoner and carted off back to Chateau Gaillard, where they're held for ransom. It's a dreadful and personally embarrassing defeat for Philip. Since Richard's been back, he's had his castles grabbed, his baggage train nicked, his armies outwitted, and now he's been dunked in a river. Enough is enough. He decides he needs a breather. At Christmas 1198, a representative of a new pope, Innocent III, arrives in France, and Philip reaches out through him to try and get Richard to agree to a ceasefire. The pitch is, and you might find this familiar, that they should all make friends again and join forces for another crusade to recover Jerusalem. Richard is initially scornful. He says it's Philip's fault that he had to come back from Jerusalem in the first place, and that Philip conspired to keep him in prison for as long as possible in Germany. So he drives hard terms for a truce, saying that he'll only leave Philip alone if he can keep absolutely everything he's won back from him, and that Philip's lucky it's not an even harsher settlement. Philip knows a lucky break when he sees one, so he accepts. Early in the new year, the two kings meet in person on the banks of the River Seine. I say meet, they actually refuse to go near each other. Richard stays on a riverboat and Philip sits on horseback on land. They discuss the peace deal and then part. As they do, both may well be reflecting on how on earth things have come to this. Once upon a time, they were the best of friends, lounging around in bed together, planning to dance off to the Holy Land, arm in arm, and save the Christian world. Now, they're such bitter enemies, they don't trust each other enough 
to stand side by side. Is there anything that can be done to salvage their former friendship? They'll never know, because this is the last time they'll ever see each other. To find out why, join us for our season finale of This Is History. Hi everybody. Before we go, I wanted to just say thank you to all of you for listening to This Is History. We hope you're loving the show as much as we love making it, and we want to hear from you. Your feedback goes a long way, and it only takes a few minutes. Just head to thisishistory.fans on the browser of your choice to answer a few questions. We're so excited to hear from you. Thanks for listening.